Hello and welcome to Resources Radio, a weekly podcast from resources for the future. I'm your host, Daniel Ramey. Before we start today's show, a quick programming note. Next week, we'll release the first episode of our month-long spin-off podcast series, Big Decisions, the Future of U.S. Environmental and Energy Policy, which will air every Tuesday in October. For this series, RFF President Richard Newell and RFF Board Chair Sue Tierney will discuss the key questions for U.S. environmental and energy policy in the coming years, in conversation with leading decision makers on both sides of the aisle, along with top analysts, scholars, and reporters. Now, on to this week's show. This week, we talk with Don Carr, Executive Director of the Canadian Parks Council, a network of national, provincial, and territorial parks across Canada. I'll ask Don about why connecting with nature is important and how the council works to enhance access to the natural world. We'll also talk about finding ways to make access to parks more equitable and how climate change is affecting how governments will need to manage their parks into the future. Stay with us. All right, Don Carr from the Canadian Parks Council. Thank you so much for joining us today on Resources Radio. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Yeah, it's it is our pleasure, and um, we're going to talk today about parks in Canada, and uh, we're going to run through all sorts of interesting questions. But before we get into our main conversation, we always like to ask our guests how they got interested in working on environmental issues in the first place. So, how did you come to be involved in in working in the environment? Oh well, that's a good question to start off. I um, I think like most people, I was fortunate to have some exposure to nature as a young child. Although I grew up in a in a really urban city, um, just on the outskirts of Toronto. So um, you know, from a, a Canada U.S. perspective, that's the sort of fifth largest city that we've got here, um, and. Uh, really, my exposure to nature uh, and my interest in getting involved in environmental issues didn't start until I was a teenager. Um, when I was 16, I really had my first opportunity to work outside of uh, the big urban city for the entire summer as a junior ranger, which was mm-hmm. a government program um, established to you know help support work opportunities for uh, youth. And that was really um, my first exposure to the idea of working and having a career in the environmental sector. And from that moment on, I was hooked. I think all of my uh, university, my college, my grad school, um, all my work opportunities that I pursued from that moment on were, were really focused on parks and protected areas and, and working within different park agencies in Canada. So that's what solidified my interest for sure. Great. That's really interesting. Well, um, can you tell us now a little bit about the organization that you now lead, the Canadian Parks Council? Um, maybe give us an introduction uh, to the organization, including how you work with uh, different provincial, territorial, uh, and other government stakeholders. Sure. So the Canadian Parks Council, it's a really interesting organization. Um, It has been uh, uh, in existence since 1962, so it's a fairly old institution. Uh, And although it's not incorporated, it is uh, an organization that's uh, been run just really at the goodwill of federal, sort of our national, uh, territorial and provincial governments, um, mainly dealing and focusing on parks and protected area issues since that time. So as an organization, it's essentially uh, functions as a board of directors 
the heads of the national, territorial, and provincial park agencies sit on this board, and that makes up uh, 14 people. So we've got 10 provinces, three territories, and our Parks Canada, our national uh, uh, member. Mm -hmm. And these 14 individuals uh, all work on issues of common interest. So I'm their executive director. They get together monthly, um, at least the executive committee does, and the full council, the full board meets uh, about four or five times a year. And together they select all sorts of issues that are of a common concern. And I, as their executive director, work on either implementing contracts or they um, support me through their staff and we create working groups to implement opportunities to sort of tackle those interests that are all um, shared. So that's how the council works. And um, it's been a really fun experience for me as their executive director. This is my eighth year doing this job, so I've sort of grown into this role. And uh, what's become really apparent through all of this is just the opportunities that we've had in the past number of years to expand our network, to work across the landscape and develop stronger relationships with other stakeholders, which has been a really exciting aspect of this job. Yeah, great. Well, we're gonna talk about all those issues in just a few minutes. And, uh, but before we do, can I ask you to describe just kind of the geographic scale and scope of the parks that are, that are part of this network, part of the, um, the national, provincial and territorial uh, organizations that you mentioned? Yeah, and I think that's one of the most exciting things. You know, when people ask me about my job and while the organization itself is quite small, it represents much larger organizations and networks. So when you think about Canada's entire parks and protected areas network, which expands beyond the work of the Canadian Parks Council, that incorporates about 2 million square kilometers, which is about 780,000 square miles. Um, and that includes national, provincial, territorial, municipal, indigenous protected areas, and also private protected areas. So it's a really large network. And then when you think about just the Canadian Parks Council, so this is the work that I help to support through national, provincial and territorial governments. Um, this network, you know, my board represents the 14 individuals, but together they manage over 2,700 different parks. And that encapsulates about 7.1% of Canada's total land base, which is, you know, huge. Yeah. So that part's really exciting and it really does encompass those opportunities to connect people with nature but also to protect canada's biodiversity and cultural diversity as well mm -hmm. that's yeah the scale of the the parks that are part of the network is is pretty astonishing and i was learning about this by looking at maps on on your website in preparation for our conversation uh, and it's really a pretty amazing network yeah, it is amazing. And actually, when you think about these organizations, too, it's not just the land base that has scale and scope, but also their contribution to um, other benefits like economic benefits, social benefits, those types of things. Just uh, in terms of the number of people that work within these organizations, it's over 5,000 full-time equivalents. And 
the people that come and visit these places, uh, this is just based on our 2017-18 statistics, and I'm so interested to see what changes this year because of COVID and this interest that exists now to connect more with nature. Uh, but in 2017-18, there were over uh, 57 million visitors uh, that visited these places within our network. So um, it has a huge opportunity just with these organizations working together through the Canadian Parks Council to have influence and impact at very local levels. And so while I work at a fairly high sort of strategic and policy level, the operationalization of our interests and work together can have a pretty profound um, impact at sort of that local or regional level. Right. And when we think about that impact, one of the goals that the Parks Council has articulated um, that I was looking at a 2014 report that, that you all published is the goal of connecting Canadians with nature. So at the risk of um, sounding dense, um, can I just ask you to help us understand why why it's important for people to connect with nature in the first place and like what is the what is the goal of um, of connecting people with with this massive parks network? Probably there are a couple of different ways of looking at that. And if I was, you know, an individual just you know, sitting here as I am currently in my office, looking out my window at a natural setting. There are um, benefits for me as an individual to connect with nature, you know, from a mental or health perspective. I'm, you know, much calmer when I'm looking out my window at green space, uh, when there's stressful experiences that are occurring um, in our lives, such as this year, 2020, which is not a normal year. Um, getting out into nature has a tremendous impact on our health and well-being. So um, that's all really important. And that um, ends up having some pretty significant economic impacts as well. The healthier we are, the less likely we're going to, you know, not be able to work and contribute to society in those ways, but also from a healthcare system perspective, the costs are much reduced. Um, I think also, you know, uh, from my perspective and the work that I'm doing, there's a huge interest because of how much I deeply care about, you know, our natural and cultural resources and just the significance and importance of green space to our survival as a human species and what we do on this planet. I have a really strong interest in wanting to create opportunities, especially for children and youth and their families to connect with nature um, because there's so much evidence that shows that the more opportunities children and youth have to connect with nature and experience all of those benefits that I talked about, the greater likelihood that they're going to want to protect these places and contribute to supporting them um, as they become adults. So I think, you know, it's not always obvious uh, why connecting with nature is such an important um, thing for all of us in society to support uh, and and looking at those different perspectives I think is part of the work that I do in the Canadian Parks Council. Yeah, absolutely. And your own experience, I mean, illustrates that to a T, right? Uh, mm -hmm. With your experience in high school and then going on now to lead the Parks Council. Exactly. Mm -hmm. So one of the challenges that I imagine uh, you confront and your colleagues confront is um, uh, trying to address the 
the potential for some people to, to not have access to, to these wonderful parks. Uh, in particular, like if, if I'm thinking about a remote park that's in a really beautiful, isolated place, not everybody has the money to get in a plane and, and fly to that location and stay in a hotel or a cabin or whatever. Um, can you talk a little bit about that particular challenge and trying to find ways to uh, provide equitable access uh, to these wonderful resources? That's an extremely important question, one that I think we're continuously trying to grapple with, um, especially these past few years. Um, historically speaking, national parks, provincial parks, you know, these opportunities, state parks in the U.S., they, they're opportunities um, for more privileged families when you think about it to get out into these spaces. They do require significant resources often to experience them. Um, so as you know, we talk about the importance of connecting with nature, which we just kind of addressed, uh, I think that it behooves us as um, government entities and others that are in this space and care deeply about them to ensure that they become more equitable and inclusive. Uh, I think some of the ways that we can do that from a policy perspective uh, is to partner better, I think, with um, other like-minded institutions that see the value and importance of connecting with nature, like the education uh, sector, I think there are tremendous opportunities to bridge relationships there to enable schools to gain better access. If we can you know, minimize uh, the cost of transportation by providing um, those opportunities to pay for transportation from an education standpoint to get these kids into our places um, in a way that uh, allows them to experience, you know, what it's like to canoe or hike for the first time or uh, participate in an interpretive or educational experience that explains, you know, all of the different senses of why plants smell and taste and, and feel differently and why they all have different kinds of values that are important to all of us. I think um, if we work with the education sector, there's a lot of uh, potential there. Um, I also think just enabling uh, greater communication between health and park sectors are also really important. Um, as an example, I know Ontario Parks, which was is one of our largest provinces here in Canada and has a really significant park system, um, it has made Healthy Parks Healthy People, which is an international campaign slogan. It's one actually that the National Park Service in the U.S. is also really working strongly and hard on. Um, they're really doing that kind of work, bridging relationships between the health sector and nature-based sort of recreation sectors to show all of those benefits that they provide. So I think we just need to be creative and actually uh, think a little bit more outside the box, allow ourselves to be in maybe some uncomfortable situations, having conversations with new people that will then reveal some of the potential that could exist that we may not currently see. So part of that actually, um, Daniel, as I'm super excited and was so happy to be participating in this conversation with you is because I don't often have the opportunity to speak and um, have a conversation with those that are part of your audience. So. I think as these kinds of conversations continue and expand across the landscape, we'll find smarter ways of working better together and find really creative things that we can do to better connect, you know, Canadians, North Americans and our global citizens better with nature. So we appreciate and value it more. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And we're going to talk uh, in a couple minutes about 
potential research questions that might be able to inform you know your work and, and i imagine we could touch on this issue of uh equitable access nice. in, in those discussions too one related question that comes to mind on is the distribution of parks geographically in terms of their like whether they're mostly in rural locations or urban locations or whether they're well mixed and when we think about you know different different people and different populations having access to these parks. Can you just help us understand uh, how, you know, how things are spread out in terms of rural versus urban uh, divides? That's a big challenge for us here in Canada because it's a huge country uh, and our population, over 80% of it lives within, you know, 100 kilometers of our border with the United States. So um, we have a highly urbanized um, population. Our population is only 37 million people total for our entire country. And if we're all situated for the most part along our southern border, um, access between sort of that urban-rural divide is fairly significant. So if you think about all of these very important, you know, national, provincial, territorial parks that are protected outside of urban communities, um, they're only vicariously appreciated, I think, by the vast majority of people in Canada uh, that live in these urban centers. So um, we need to think about how do we connect and um, a grow awareness of these places and provide opportunities either virtually or you know, in situ. How do we increase those opportunities for Canadians and others to truly understand the value of these places that are outside their immediate reach? Uh, and and that is, um, I think, a major challenge, and which is probably why when you think about um, just equitable opportunities to experience our places, that the Canadian Parks Council and much of the work that I've been um, supporting over these past few years is sort of centered around that idea of parks for all. Um, that's, a, that's sort of a term that's being used in other places, but from a Canadian perspective, uh, really what that means is is us working across the landscape, different organizations, both when you think those within the sector and allied sectors and the different levels of government, working with indigenous peoples, um, working with nature conservancies. We are all working toward figuring out how all of our places connect so that we can better communicate how to access them and protect them from a public standpoint. Um, we have a long way to go there, I think, and I think there's tremendous potential. And if we have greater opportunities to share and showcase what our system is all about and that there's places just outside your front door if you live in an urban center compared to you know, a rural um, sort of community, uh, then I think people will have a much better understanding about how they see themselves within that you know, system of systems. Because uh, that's really what parks and protected areas are. We are networks of networks of networks. And I think we could do a much better job at showcasing how all of these places uh, connect and are relevant to our health and well-being no matter where we are. Right. That's really interesting. And, and it makes a lot of sense. So you mentioned just a moment ago uh, working with Indigenous communities and bringing in Indigenous voices um, into your work at the Parks Council. Can you give us a little bit of a sense uh, on how those Indigenous views and Indigenous communities help inform park policy at different levels of government in Canada? Super important question, very important question, and it's becoming more and more recognized um, over the course of time just how critical it is for us to figure out how to better collaborate and work 
together and what that looks like. So um, just in the past few years, there's been a real focus on, um, in Canada, really reconciling our relationship, not only with the land and our places and parks, but also with each other, different perspectives, indigenous and non-indigenous. So I would say um, indigenous voices, uh, they need to be amplified in the work that together we all do in uh, sort of this business of parks and protected areas and just understanding how living sustainably um, requires uh, looking at these different perspectives. You know, one of the most interesting things that I think I've been um, so privileged to experience is um, you know, opportunities to grow and learn from and meet Indigenous uh, elders and leaders across Canada that are in this conservation sector. Um, the, the biggest thing that I think I have learned and the walk, the takeaway that I have, and it informs everything I do now in my work and actually personal life as well, is having a deep appreciation for uh, the different perspectives and worldviews that uh, exist here in Canada. Um, and how by listening to those different worldviews and, and seeing how we live through those different worldviews, uh, we will have a much better opportunity of working collaboratively together. And I guess what I, what I mean by that is like the Indigenous worldview, it's very different from the worldview that I was brought up in as a non-Indigenous person. And um, I've got great respect for uh, what that worldview is all about. Um, what I've learned is that it's very much based on the practices of reciprocity, um, which is in line with my own values about, you know, whatever we take from the land, we need to give back. You know, it's, mm -hmm. it's, it's based on um, ideas of gratitude and respect and generosity and looking at how we live on the land and the work that we do in parks from that perspective, it sort of shifts the conversation. Um, and the values are all aligned, I would say. And if we have a much greater opportunity to engage in those kinds of conversations and see our world through these different perspectives and lenses, I think we have a much greater chance of sort of connecting the heart and mind to our work and working hand in hand in ways that probably will create much better outcomes for a sustainable life. Hmm. Yeah, that's all nice, very nicely said. Um, so we've talked about one potential challenge when it comes to access to parks, which is, you know, looking to ensure equitable access for everyone. There's another big challenge that uh, I know you're thinking about a lot, which is the challenge of climate change mm -hmm. uh, and how it's affecting uh, parks and other wild places, both in Canada and, of course, around the world. So can you talk a little bit about how the governments that you work with, how it's affecting the way that they manage their parks and plan for the future? Oh, it's huge. It is. It's something you cannot escape from, especially, yeah. you know, in northern, these more northern climates, like it's having a humongous and a very significant impact climate change, especially to our northern communities. Uh, but given the scope and scale of the park system that I mentioned at the beginning of this podcast, uh, you cannot escape the impact that climate change is having to our, you know, natural regions and biodiversity. Um, I mean, we see this with all the uh, wildfires, the extreme weather episodes that are, uh, we're all experiencing um, nowadays. And so from a parks perspective and government perspective, uh, 
we're very much um, trying to collaborate on ways that we can learn how to better adapt to climate change situations. Um, and this is by, you know, protecting and restoring, you know, ecosystems, you know, they're very resilient, but how can we um, restore and protect these places so that our cultural and natural resources continue to thrive? Uh, and, and that's a real challenge. Um, so Canadian Parks Council, in, in one sense, this is where we together can be very effective in bringing together some you know, really smart people to shed light on how parks can help to adapt, but also um, uh, learn from, influence, and create situations where climate change can be a much better understood phenomenon um, mm -hmm. across different governments. Uh, one way we're doing that is we have um, we've created an academic partnership to establish uh, an institution called the Canadian Parks Collective for Innovation and Leadership. Uh, CIPSL is its acronym, but this Canadian Parks Collective, uh, it's really allowing us to look at issues like climate change. Um, from a professional development standpoint, I know we've got um, dedicated park leadership programs that are focused really on um, you know, bringing climate change experts and leaders together so that they can learn from one another and bring back that knowledge to their own institutions so that they can improve how they're managing and adapting to climate change in the future. So it's a it's a really big issue. And I think one that we're going to continue to have to obviously um, look at and, and put a lot of resources towards because climate change isn't going away anytime soon. <laughs> yes, mm -hmm. unfortunately, that is very much the case, and we're being reminded of it so frequently these days. Mm -hmm. That's for sure. So, Don, one last question before we go to our top of the stack segment. Um, and as you know, RFF is largely a research institution. We have a lot of researchers who listen to our show. And I know that the Parks Council is interested in working with researchers more uh, to answer some really important questions. So can you give us a sense of, you know, maybe a couple of questions uh, that you're trying to tackle that would help inform your work that researchers like those at RFF might be able to actually help you um, come to some conclusions on? Oh, well, we are always open to working with researchers. That is for sure. You know, and as I just mentioned how we have a Canadian Parks Collective for innovation and leadership, that actually has an emerging research network um, to help kind of identify exactly those kinds of questions that both park agencies have from a sort of an institution or operations standpoint and where there are interests among researchers, uh, both in the academic and non-academic community. So um, that's a really hard question for me to answer in a way because Canada's parks are, are just so diverse. Mm -hmm. uh, they are exceptional living laboratories to study key conservation issues like climate change that we just talked about and biodiversity and connectivity. Um, but what's exciting is that parks are also uh, very interested in building those natural science areas with research into human behavior and recreation patterns. So I think um, there's a, probably an unlimited uh, array just because of the, the tremendous and, and, and far-reaching benefits that parks provide. I think that there are research questions from a, both a natural science perspective, uh, social science perspective, um, indigenous ways of knowing, all of these other kinds of questions that can come into play. And I would just say um, wholeheartedly that the Canadian Parks Council, through our academic partnerships that we're continuing to grow, 
are so open to finding ways that we can learn from each other and to support each other's work. So with RFF, like um, very much interested in, in growing this relationship and learning more about um, what you do and then also like how we can just benefit from each other's knowledge and space and um, so that we can continue to do better in so many different ways. Great. Okay. Well, yeah. So it sounds like the, the door is open for future conversations about uh, potential research collaborations. Absolutely. Definitely. <laughs> Great. Well, um, let's close it out now with uh, our last question, the top of the stack question. So uh, asking you, Don, to recommend something that you've read or watched or heard recently that uh, might be related to the environment, even if tangentially, uh, that you think is interesting or fun uh, that you'd recommend to our listeners. And I'll start with a very brief recommendation uh, of an article that our colleague here at RFF, Margaret Walls, has recently published in the Review of Environmental Economics and Policy. Hmm. Uh, it's a journal article, but it's uh, very accessible uh, for a broad audience. It's called Public Land Conflicts and Controversies, the designation of national monuments in the Western United States. Margaret's mm. been doing lots of work on national monuments here in the U.S., and this article is really interesting because it it, it explores the history of um, Western public lands in the U.S. It talks about sort of their purpose, what they're intended to do, uh, and it really focuses on the relationship between the rural communities that host uh, those monuments and those public lands and the federal government that is, you know, maybe seeking to expand those monuments or contract those monuments and the controversies uh, that arise uh, when those types of decisions are made. So really interesting article for anyone interested in public lands. So uh, now we'll turn it over to you, Don. Do you have any recommendations that are at the top of your literal or metaphorical reading stack? Mm, well, you've got me very interested in that journal article. So maybe after we're done the conversation we're having, you can send me a link to it. I'd be very interested in reading it. Sure thing. And for our listeners, there will be a link to it on the, uh, on the show notes uh, for this episode. So you should be able to click pretty easily. Perfect. Um, when I'm thinking about recent books or articles that I've read, the one that comes to mind, which, um, you know, up until recently, I, I don't think I necessarily saw the great connection that it may have with the way I think about, you know, work and life and all my interests. But the book itself is called The Vanishing Half. I highly recommend it. It's uh, by an author named Britt Bennett, and she's uh, from California, actually. So she's an American author. Um, and this book was recommended to me by a very good friend of mine, and we're actually going to be discussing it in my book club next mm. week. So The Vanishing Half, and it, uh, it's very much about exploring racial inequities uh, in the United States in particular, but I think it's got far-reaching implications and ways of thinking uh, beyond that. Um, so it's really sort of looking at the distribution of wealth and opportunities and privilege and how that all changes depending on where you were born, um, what skin you've grown up in, and the relationships that you've had over the course of time. So I think the reason why it resonates with me, particularly I think as a, as a book or something I've read um, to share within this podcast, is it's got me thinking about uh, the idea of inclusion. And we talked about this earlier, about how we need to make our um, you know, green space, parks, uh, forests, we need to make them more inclusive so people have the opportunity to experience them. Um, but what this book has done for me is to show how 
uh, social justice issues are very much experienced differently depending on who you are and how you were raised and the opportunities and experiences that you had growing up per se. So looking at things from um, a different perspective, and we talked about this before, is I want to really figure out more ways of sort of breaking down those barriers or unpacking, you know, my own privilege backpack, so to speak, right. so that I can be like, uh, better at expanding relationships with people that may not necessarily be within my immediate circle of friends. So I'm so excited to like discuss this book with my book club. And, um, you know, it's one that I just would recommend to others. I couldn't put it down. It was just a, a great read. Wow. Fantastic. So The Vanishing Half by Britt Bennett. People can can find it online. And again, we'll have a link to it too. So Great. thank you, Don, for that recommendation and for coming on the show and telling us about your work at the Canadian Parks Council. It's really fascinating. And we're really grateful to you for coming on the show today. Well, Daniel, it's been fun. Thanks so much for the invite. This has been great. You've been listening to Resources Radio. If you have a minute, we'd really appreciate you leaving us a rating or a comment on your podcast platform of choice. Also, feel free to send us your suggestions for future episodes. Resources Radio is a podcast from Resources for the Future. RFF is an independent, nonprofit research institution in Washington, D.C. Our mission is to improve environmental, energy, and natural resource decisions through impartial economic research and policy engagement. Learn more about us at rff.org. The views expressed on this podcast are solely those of the participants. They do not necessarily represent the views of resources for the future, which does not take institutional positions on public policies. Resources Radio is produced by Elizabeth Wasson, with music by me, Daniel Ramey. Join us next week for another episode.